Hello, church family. Great to be with you. I've missed the opportunity to speak to you uh, in these uh, weekly sermons, and uh, just so glad to be back and carrying on this sermon series, He Reigns. It's been fun to listen to Chris's sermons the last two weeks. I've been uh, totally edified and encouraged and uh, just spurred on to uh, trust Jesus in just uh, profound ways. Have you ever had a year where you've said, I'm glad it's over? I'm glad this year is behind me. If someone said that about 2019, I wonder how they might be feeling about right now. We all have days, we have weeks, we have months, we have years that are chaotic and burdensome. But peace, comfort, hope are not found in turning the page to another day or another month or even another year. They're found in knowing the God of peace and knowing that he is with us and that he cares for us in all circumstances. He sees us, he hears us, and in fact, he is with us in all the storms of life. And that includes the storm that we're experiencing right now. You know, Nancy and I are doing well. I know I've sent you out a few videos the last couple of weeks. We're doing well. Uh, We've had many opportunities to trust the Lord and Many opportunities, quite frankly, to give in to the temptations of Satan. We've had more opportunities to spark at each other, and we've had more opportunities to seek one another's forgiveness. But overall, it's been a sweet time for us. We've spent more time in prayer together, more time in the Word together, than maybe we've, we've done in our entire 40 years of marriage. We've used this time of physical separation from those we love to draw near to and cling to the Lord and draw near and cling to one another. What are you doing? Or let me ask you this. What are you clinging to in this time of physical distancing? Are you clinging to the hope that this all goes away and we finally experience peace again? Or are you holding on to the God of peace who gives peace in any in all circumstances? Nancy and I recently watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I don't know what you're binging on, but we decided to binge on that trilogy, and it was a lot of fun. And I was struck by a scene from the second movie, The Two Towers, when Frodo was about to get devoured by one of the fell beasts. You might remember that, that he's, he's standing on the wall, the fell beast comes in, or the dragon comes in, he's got the ring, so, so they have found him, and they are ready just to uh, chomp on him when all of a sudden Sam comes and tackles Frodo, and the dragon, the fell beast, misses Frodo. Sam and Frodo roll down the stairs, and um, Frodo kind of comes to his senses not knowing what happens, and he pulls his sword out, and he puts it to Sam's throat. I think Nancy has thought about doing that to me a few times this week, putting the sword to my throat until I said, honey, it's me, it's your friend Dan. In the same way Sam said to Frodo with the, with the sword at his throat, it's me, it's your Sam. Don't you know your Sam? And Frodo came to his senses and he backed away and he said, Sam, I can't do it. I can't do it, Sam. And Sam responded this way. 
He said, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full, and, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now, folk in these stories had lots of chances of turning back, but they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. And Frodo responded, what were they holding on to, Sam? What are we holding on to, Sam? And Sam responded, there's a good in this world and it's worth fighting for. Fun story, apropos for the time that we live in. Friends, we live in a very hard time. And I don't want to sugarcoat it. There's unprecedented hardship today. But I tell you, the end will be better. It will be better than the greatest of stories. The end will be exceedingly happy for all of God's children. A new day will come. You see, we have a sure hope. We have an ultimate hope. Not a sure and ultimate hope that the spread of COVID-19 will cease or the economy won't get as bad as many are projecting. But we have a sure hope in a king who is on his throne and promises to see his children all the way home. A kingdom that can never be destroyed and a citizenship that is secure. We have a king who is motivated by love. We have a king who cares, a king who is on his throne, who is putting his enemies under his feet. You know, last week, I really appreciated what Chris poked into and the question that he asked. He asked, is there a gap between our expectations for what God has given us and what we think God owes us? Let me ask you, what are you clinging to today? What hope for peace are you clinging to? The king of mercy and the king of peace are the hope that everything will soon be better. I'm going to start us off today in Luke chapter 4, where Chris started us off last week, and it's where Jesus' ministry started. In the town of Nazareth, where Jesus was raised, in the temple, it was after he was tempted for 40 days. And he went into the temple in Nazareth to read God's word. And it starts like this in chapter 4, verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And by the way, in our Bibles, it is written in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me 
to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is the year of the Lord's favor? Again, Chris explained last week that the year of the Lord's favor corresponds to the Old Testament institution that God established called the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year, Israel was to take the entire year off. Maybe kind of like what we're doing right now. Cancel all the debts, kind of like we're doing right now. Return to its original owners all family property that had been sold. And generally be kind and generous to one another. It was everyone's job in the year of Jubilee to proclaim liberty and to show this favor to one another, especially to those who were incapable of gaining it by their status or their ability. In a physical sense, this liberty benefited mostly the poor, the blind, and the oppressed of that day. Jesus is quoting Isaiah to say this, I am the Messiah. I'm the Messiah who brings liberation to its fullest realization through the gospel. The cross cancels all our debts. And brothers and sisters, that is the mission of Jesus Christ in our life. You and I were incapable of gaining God's favor on our own, based on our own ability or our status. So he came to declare the day of God's favor for us. And I want to bring your attention to the fact that Jesus did not quote the whole of Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. He actually left a phrase out as he um, unrolled that scroll and spoke it in that temple. After to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Isaiah continued, and the day of the vengeance of our God. But I want you to notice that in Luke 4, Jesus did not include to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. And you might ask, well, why is that? And I would tell you this. It's because the display of his wrath will wait until his second coming. God did not send, uh, John 3, 17, John did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The day of the Lord's favor brought mercy and not vengeance. This is important. This is important that Jesus came to bring mercy and peace, to make us friends, to make us sons and daughters, to give us our daily bread, to forgive us of our trespasses, and to not lead us into temptation. You see, the door to salvation is open it's open for all who by faith believe that Jesus is who he said he was. This is an age of peace and mercy, not wrath and vengeance. So today, on Palm Sunday, I want to highlight the circumstances surrounding Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. 
in his healing of a blind man on the way to his coronation. And I want to remind you all throughout this sermon that Jesus cares for your temporal circumstances. He has always cared for, the, for our temporal circumstances, and he chooses to heal some now. But we will not all be healed this side of his second coming. It's important for our peace of mind to know what he will do in part now and what he will do later in its fullness. And so my prayer for you is that you would be reminded here to cling to the only thing, the only one that can keep us going. Let's pick up in Jesus' life three years after he read the scroll in the temple in Nazareth. He's about a week out from his crucifixion. And in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, Jesus and the 12 disciples were walking down the road towards Jerusalem when he spoke these words for the third time to them. See, he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, to the glory of God, he will rise again. Something that strikes me about Jesus' life and ministry is that even though his mission was to lay his life down for the salvation of many, he also cared deeply about the temporal needs of humanity. He cares deeply about the temporal needs of you and I. Jesus, Jesus in his um, time on earth, healed many of their physical afflictions. He even raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And you might be thinking, and even thinking correctly, quite frankly, that he performed his healings and other miracles to authenticate his deity. And he, in fact, did. However, I would tell you that he also cared deeply for the needs of the people, particularly the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, the lame, and the outcasts of society. In Mark chapter 10, 46 through 52, we're introduced to a man named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. And even though this account is given in both Matthew and Luke, I chose to walk you through the one in Mark because Mark emphasizes a personal element that the other two gospel writers don't. He brings out the fact that this blind man has a name. And this blind man has a family. He has parents. He has value as one created in the image of God. This blind beggar probably sat in the same place begging for anything that passerbys would give him for years, if not decades. Begging was all the blind man knew. It was his vocation and it was his identity. He was invisible to the passerbys He was as invisible to the passerbys as they were to him. He could not gain his sight by simply 
opening his eyes. He needed someone to have mercy on him, to open his blind eyes so that he can see physically and so that he could see spiritually. So upon hearing of Jesus' reputation and that Jesus was, was, um, was, was within shouting distance, he did the only thing that a person in that type of desperation could do. Listen up. Mark 10, 46 through 52. Jesus and his disciples came to Jericho. And as they were leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd and a great crowd Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, tell him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart. Get up, he's calling you. And he threw off his cloak. He sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus said to him, and the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. Luke adds this, that he followed Jesus, glorifying him along the way. Jesus gave Bartimaeus his physical sight and his spiritual sight. There was both a physical and a spiritual healing. Jesus heard Bartimaeus. He knew his name. He had mercy on him. And the man's response was to follow Jesus and to glorify him in his following. The next day, five days before Jesus was to be put to death, Jesus and the 12 disciples would make their journey to Jerusalem. It was time. It was time for Jesus to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, to be condemned to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, who would mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. It was also time for a coronation. For all to know that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the long-awaited king. He asked two of his disciples to engage in a seemingly random task. And we see this in Luke chapter 19, 30 through 35. Jesus told two of his disciples, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You should say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to, it, said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord is in need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on top of it. They had never known Jesus to ride an animal. They had never known Jesus to ride a beast of burden like this donkey. In that day, only military leaders and politicians rode upon beasts of burden. 
And that was primarily to display their power and their importance. Upon that colt, Jesus looked like a king. It had nothing to do with him wearing a robe, nothing to do with a crown or a scepter. It's because it triggered a memory. It triggered a memory of all the people watching. You see, centuries earlier, King Solomon had ridden the same route to his own coronation. Let me give you a little bit of background. God had promised Solomon's father, King David, that his kingdom would last forever. God gave David many sons, some who were foolish and some who actually honored their father and the God that he served. But the throne, David's throne, was meant for Bathsheba's son, Solomon. David had sworn before God that Solomon would be the heir to his throne. And as King David lay dying at the end of his life, his son, Adonijah, schemed to take the throne and planned his own coronation. Adonijah gathered most of his brothers and many of his father's military leaders to witness and be a part of this historic event. But he did not invite his brother Solomon, nor did he invite David or David's closest advisors. So David sent for all those who remained loyal to him and said it was time to crown his successor. And King David said to them in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 33 through 35, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over all of Judah. What David remembered and what Adijana ignored was that man did not appoint king over God's people. Only God appoints kings. The people of Israel grew up hearing stories of King David. They pictured Solomon riding his father's colt into Jerusalem as the people received him as the Lord's anointed ruler. The, the colt became a symbol of a royal coronation and by extension, a symbol of being under the peaceful provision of God. Jesus on that colt <clears throat> didn't just summon thoughts of Solomon as he approached Jerusalem on that colt. He also brought to mind the words of the prophet Zechariah, who told the people long after Solomon's reign to look for their future king to enter Jerusalem the same way. Listen to Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah prophesied that the king would come riding on a donkey to bring peace, not war. He would, bring his peace, he would bring a peaceable kingdom, and he would rule over all the nations. Like those who shouted, long live the king at Solomon's coronation, 
the crowds now began to gather around Jesus. They began to spread their coats out on the road in front of Jesus, and those without coats tore off nearby palm branches to roll out the red carpet and welcome the one who may have come to finally bring them peace. And in chapter 19 of Luke, it says, As Jesus was drawing near to Jerusalem, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And Matthew added, Hosanna to the Son of David. Save us, Son of David. In verse 39, it says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, this was a coronation. And Jesus said, if the people won't praise me, the stones within her walls and lining her streets would cry out, rejoice. Your king is coming to you. He is coming to bring you the salvation your hearts have always desired. And as they continued down the road to Jerusalem, the crowd pleaded for Jesus to bring them peace. The crowd pleaded for Jesus to save them. In verses 41 and 44 of Luke 19, when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known of this day the things that were to make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This was the time of Jerusalem's visitation. Jesus loved the people of that city. Jesus wept not because of the torture and the death that is awaiting him, but because of what the people wanted and what they needed were so far from each other. They expected a king to take out Rome and to give them back their national identity. But the peace that Jesus brought was not through a change in circumstances. It was a peace that comes through faith in a king who loved them and wanted a relationship with them. He brought a peace that resulted in a change of direction, a change in identity, a change of kingdoms. He brought a peace that came from being delivered from the domain of darkness and being transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. In the same way that Jews' hope for peace was misplaced, I fear that many of ours might be misplaced as well. Our hope for peace is not in the CDC. Our hope for peace is not in the White House. Our hope for peace is not in doctors or nurses or even in a strong economy. These are all good things. But it's not our ultimate hope for peace. Our hope is in a Savior who has already defeated the only enemies that can destroy us. Sin. Satan, and our final enemy, death. 
Jesus knew the salvation that these people required. And he also knew the cost. He knew that salvation was unfolding before them at this very moment in time. A salvation that required his punishment. And the punishment that would bring them peace was about to be laid upon him. Isaiah 53. Jesus' life and death secured by grace through faith purchased our peace in our salvation. We have peace with God and as a result we can have peace in any in every circumstance. Jesus not only provided a way to salvation, he provided a way to live. Jesus wasn't just our salvation, he was an example on how to live our lives. So I want to ask you, what are you clinging to in this time? The hope and peace of salvation or the hope and peace that your circumstances change? I want to finish with this in Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30, where in just a couple of days after they arrived in Jerusalem, a couple of days before Jesus' death, it's when Peter, it's when uh, uh, I think it was John and James asked Jesus, um, can we sit at your right hand? And Jesus gave them a lesson in humility and service. And it, and it says this in Luke 22, verse 24, a dispute rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at the table? Or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? What Jesus is telling them, what they, that the, the, the kingdom, the human kingdom, the one who's greatest is the one who is served. But in his upside-down kingdom, he says this, but I am among you as the one who serves. Mark says it this way, in quoting Jesus, I came not to be served, but to serve and lay my life down as a ransom for many. In God's kingdom, we're not lorded over by God. We're loved by a serving king. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and lay his life down for many. Listen to this. We continue in verse 28. Jesus says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, the Father assigned Jesus a kingdom. And that's a kingdom that endures forever. A kingdom of peace being ruled by the God of peace. And by faith, you and I have been assigned or appointed the same kingdom. And there's two final observations inside of this reality. We live in God's kingdom. Every day is an opportunity to proclaim the year of God's favor. First to one another. 
as Sam um, reminded Frodo of his hope that all things are going to be better. We can remind one another of this hope. We can proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to one another as fellow kingdom citizens, reminding each other that we've been set free from the power and the penalty of sin, that we've been set free from the power and the authority of Satan, and that the last enemy, death, has been conquered. We have a peace with God, and He will bring us peace in the midst of any and all storms. And finally, in this kingdom that's been assigned to us, we're to serve in this kingdom. We're to bring the peace of God to those around us, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor to all who are in need. To all who have temporal needs and all who have eternal needs, physical and spiritual. And this peace is often brought by serving the temporal needs of others. And by serving their temporal needs, oftentimes it becomes a bridge to share them where our hope lies. In church, we're in the midst of unprecedented hardship. I don't want to sugarcoat it that we're probably two to three weeks out here in northern Colorado from the apex of people getting sick and dying from the coronavirus. We are in unprecedented hardship. But we have an unprecedented opportunity to shine and share the love of Jesus to those around us who are both helpless and hopeless. And there are people today that are helpless and hopeless that they didn't even know that they were missing hope three weeks ago. It is an amazing opportunity. And I want to encourage you, I just want to give you a couple of practical things to think about. Is that on our website, windsorchurch.org, on the homepage, there's a couple of buttons to click on. If you are in need of help, if you are in need of anything temporal, Counseling, food, money, essentials, shelter. If you need prayer, click on that button and fill it out and somebody will be in touch with you. Let your community group know. Uh, let your community group be that, that, that um, virtual button, if you will. Let them know about your needs. And there's another button on that website that says, um, give help. And if you are able to give help, if you're able to drive and shop for groceries or to get medication or to maybe walk a dog, if you've been uh, blessed with resources where you can give over and above what you are normally giving to the church, um, click on that button and let us know how you can serve. And finally, I want to encourage you, and I don't mind doing this. It might sound weird to some people, but I want to encourage you to continue giving. Um, the church is you and I. The church is not this facility that I'm standing in right now. It's a, it's a great facility, and God willing, we'll be back in it someday. But there's ministry to do. There's people to reach. And if you've got extra resources, give over and above. Give online over and above to the Helping Hand Fund. And let's build that fund up 
to be able to bless people in this church that are hurting and people in our community who are without hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we bless you. We thank you, God, for this um, great opportunity that you've given the church around the world to be the church. You've given us an opportunity to, um, to examine ourselves and to see, God, that if we um, worship and follow you because of only the good gifts that you give us, or if we worship and follow you because of who you are. And God, I pray that you would remind us of the peace that we have with you and the peace that we can have in any and all circumstances because of the peace that we have with you. And Lord, I pray that you would show us how to become the church, um, this uh, Windsor Community Church. Help us be the church uh, today in 2019 for your glory and for the good of your blood-bought people. And God's people said, amen. Love you, church family.